Greetings, this is Kurt. Welcome to the second part of the three divisions of Book One. If this is your first visit to the Harkin Theater, we recommend you step back and start with Episode One of Prelude, The Hostage Prince. Otherwise, please make yourself comfortable as we continue the performances. As always, if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and share on your favorite platform. Comments or questions directed to our email will be answered promptly. If you care to help in keeping these complex productions coming, please buy me a coffee via the website coffee.com slash the Harkin Theater. Unlike my wife's favorite morning beverage, me, I prefer tea with cream and sugar, the donation website coffee.com is spelled ko-fi.com slash the Harkin Theater. Refer to episode descriptions for the exact address, our email, and our secure website. And thank you for listening. Step through the gateway and enter the universe of the Harkin Theater. A Bridge of Doom by Kurt Paul Hotelling Part 2 Agents of the Dark One A Prince's Second Sojourn Chapter 2 A deafening crack of thunder jolted Paul awake, and he blinked at the bright sunlight burning down on him. Have I been dreaming? Was his first thought as he rubbed his eyes, then his stomach. There was an odd soreness around his gut, similar to how he felt after a bout of stage fright on an opening night. Sunlight? For a moment, his memory faltered, the last thing he could recall being his donut picnic and lying back to watch the stars come out. Have I slept in the field all night? He jerked upright, expecting to see the parking lot full and students heading toward morning classes, for which he himself would be late. Encircling him were tall, roughly-hewn slabs and lintels of stone. Instead of the roar of cars and clamor of feet, there was only the disjointed and intermingled melodies of songbirds foraging for breakfast in the surrounding forest. His initial impression was that of Stonehenge, but having recently researched that structure, he could see this pattern, though similar, was quite different. The double suns smiling at him from above the distant line of hills confirmed he was somewhere else entirely. With widening eyes, he stood and surveyed the entire hillock. Marie's world. He dared to whisper, afraid it would melt away suddenly if he spoke louder. It had a name like his own earth, he assumed, but had never heard it spoken during his initial journey between worlds. But this didn't bother him. How often does one hear the Earth's name in a single day? Turning his head in all directions, he took in everything he could see and hoped to whatever God existed here that he wasn't about to wake up. The last threads of a thin mist around his feet evaporated in the brightening day. 
Then he recalled vague images from his first visit when Marie and he, astride her horse, Bomali, had burst out of the spinning light into this very spot. Or at least I suppose so. He gazed up and around at the silent stones. How many monolithic stone circles could exist on this world? Then he remembered that the British Isles were dotted with them and decided there just might be more than one. But what does it matter as long as I am here? The question of how he had gotten here also seemed pointless. So enthralled was he with the apparent reality of his surroundings that he forgot entirely about the three runners in white. All that counted was he and Marie were now in the same place. Well, more or less. He amended, resting his hands on his hips and squinting at the cloudless sky. Finding her was going to be difficult, especially considering he had no horse, no direction, and no idea how to get to Forum. That's probably east, he said to the stones as he gazed at the suns. Not that it makes any difference. He still didn't know where he was going. And then it dawned on him, and his eyes grew rounder as he remembered. Without a moment's hesitation, he ran between the nearest stones and leaped from the hillside with his arms spread wide. All the shadows within the circle were wiped out for an instant as a sphere of blinding white flashed above the dew-covered slope. The distant roll of thunder jerked Enchanter Gaewan awake from his drowsiness astride his steed, and he tugged gently on the reins. Mm. What's that I hear, Molly? He asked his horse. The grumble cascaded over the landscape and faded away. After a long frown at the horizon ahead where he saw no storm clouds, no clouds at all, he rubbed the bleariness from his eyes, licked a finger, and tested the wind. Nothing. He shook his head. Portents. Portents. What do you think, my friend? Male blew noisily and pawed the road with his left hook. You don't know, but you don't like it either, eh? Hmm. Nothing important is ever easy, is it? Feeling warm from the morning suns, he tossed back the deep hood of his emerald green cloak and scratched through the curls on his head. Hmm. The Enchanter was on the main road leading from the coastal city of Cresden to the royal fortress city of Foran, his errand one of the student to its teacher. After exchanging letters with Rothson, he had been invited to come and learn for a moon or so under the venerable master's tutelage. For Gaewan, this was a great honor, Rothson being the only living master enchanter. Except for his own teacher in the civilized lands of his adopted home across the ocean, there were no others in all the reclaimed realms that could teach the ways of the path. <sighs> Gaewan knew it would be foolishness to ignore the omen. First a rotten night of sleep, and now the warning voice of the sound current. What next? He had dreamed of riding his horse at full gallop in the deep of night, down the road to Foran. They had stopped at a large puddle in the road, beyond which a forest fire blocked his way. 
Vividly, he recalled the heat and the tongues of flame devouring the trees before him. Thunder means lightning. Lightning starts fires. He raised a finger to the air, but rain stops them. Male wickered his impatience and plodded forward a few paces. You're right, I suppose. We may as well move on. There's nothing we can do if it doesn't concern us. He reflected on this for a moment, then added, Or doesn't concern us yet. He tapped his horse's withers gently, and they continued down the road. He reached for a skin of water. Lowering the buoyant sack, he stared at it thoughtfully. Rain is water. What does that make me? He became oblivious to the gentle sway and jostle of the ride as he lost himself among his cogitations. I know you like this, Bomalai. Marie ran a brush smoothly over her steed's flank. Her cheerful tone belied the redness of her eyes and the tear stains on her face. She wanted to keep busy, to try and forget what had happened. Her destroyer didn't seem to mind the extra attention as he nuzzled the sweetened oats in the stall bin. But the more she tried to push away the horror, the more its memory encroached on her thoughts. The shouts of alarm of the night before echoed through her mind. Over and over she ran down the street to the Magian Alliance, her eyes on the smoke and flame belching out the window of Rothson's private chambers. The small crowd of soldiers and citizens standing below could only watch and wonder, the Magian Alliance's doors shut against all but mages and their ilk. Marie had shoved her please, way through the onlookers and stormed through the entryway of the building. Rothson had granted her the rare privilege of free passage. Where others encountered a locked door painted red with mystic runes engraved on its surface, she found an open archway. Inside the building, she ignored the rush of bodies as she tore through the halls and up the spiral steps. Someone was yelling. Heavy smoke plunged the dimly lit stairway into black, the heat forcing everyone back. Choking on the stench of soot and burning flesh, she neared the door to his chamber, but hands stopped her, held her, pulled her back downstairs. Despite her coughs and tearing eyes, she fought her way free of the restraining hands. She wanted to scream, to cry, to run up there and see what was wrong, but something stopped her suddenly. She had felt his presence before seeing him. Adare had been awoken. The shouting quieted, leaving only the crackle of fire above. Garbed in a simple belted tunic of blue and white, his relaxed attire, the archmage came up beside Marie and gazed at the smoke billowing out of the stairs. His sidelong glance at her with his striking blue eyes conveyed more in an instant than words ever could. What was happening was impossible, unthinkable, and frightening. And where was Rothson? He held up both hands to the smoke and sent a terrific gust of wind blowing through the corridor and up the stairwell, dissipating the heat and smoke in a few heartbeats. Amber and red light flickered along the blackened stones as the fire above continued unabated. 
Then, while the gale continued to blow, the Archmage dropped one arm and extended the other forward with fingers splayed. Marie wondered at how he shook as if with restrained anger. He slowly made a fist as if smothering something in his palm. In moments, the fire was out. Marie started to run up the steps, but was halted suddenly. Stop! The next thing she knew, he was above at the door to the chamber. The strange tone of his voice froze her in place. When two of the younger men who went to help came staggering back down with white faces, she knew she didn't want to see. Adare shut and locked the door. He came down, his expression unreadable, his eyes distressed. Until we can divine what happened here, this tower is sealed. Then he looked at Marie. Come to me in the morning. I can tell you nothing now. After sleepless hours of despair, lifted only by the one flicker of hope that Rothson had not been there when the fire started, Marie made her way back to the Alliance and Adare's chambers. She remembered Rothson's insistence that he was not a mage, but an enchanter, when she saw the Archmage's room. Where they both kept stacks of books and scrolls, Adare had the addition of many potions and strange-looking devices whose purpose was impossible to even guess. Rothson is dead. Her mind refused to stop repeating them like an elegy. How? Why? He had shaken his head. The master enchanter is dead. And that's all you need to know. She had wanted to press further, but thought better of it. Aside from a casual greeting now and again, she and Adare knew nothing of each other. And the harsh light in his ice-blue eyes... A combination of grief and fury, I suppose. ...was sufficient warning for her not to push her privilege. A privilege that now had no purpose. With Rothson gone, there was no reason for her to roam the Magian Alliance's property anymore. Unspoken, but very clear, was Adare's determination in rooting out the cause of this event. Also, Marie knew from her frequent talks with Rothson that with his death came an end to the schooling of enchanters, a serious detriment to the Magian Alliance and its members across the kingdoms. He had been the last master enchanter known, and of any students there were only two at last counting, one in territories to the south, the other on the land of the ancients, Fellstar, across the ocean. The dwindling number was due, according to Rothson, to the strong self-discipline required of the beginning enchanter, something many could not maintain, thus sending them in pursuit of the quicker, easier path of magic. Marie came out of her thoughts to find she had brushed her way around to the other side of her horse. Having exhausted this particular chore, she reached for a comb on the stall wall and started untangling knots in Bomali's tail. Anything to keep busy. Rothson's death closed down her small circle of friends to practically nil. With whom else could I share my experiences and adventure with Paul twelve moons ago? Our 
Already I miss being able to go see him, sit in his chair, and stroke his cat's back while he nattered about various things. The master enchanter was the only one who understood my thrills, my fears, and my pain at the loss. Seeing Paul dispatched by the specters had been more frightening than she could ever have imagined, and with the memory of how they had come for her on Paul's world so many moons ago, she worried that one day they would decide she was to meet Paul's fate as well. Even Rothen was uncertain where the specters were concerned. When she had voiced this fear, he had looked thoughtful and said, Not to worry about it. But it had been obvious that even he was not convinced that they had seen the last of the specters. Perhaps that's what happened to him. She wondered uneasily, but knew there was no way she could find an answer. Bomalai shuffled uneasily as she caught herself tugging harder than she should on a large briar tangled near the end of his tail. She dropped the comb. <sighs> Sorry, fellow. My mind is elsewhere. Moving up beside his head, she rubbed his neck, then hugged him close. You're my only friend now. You know that? The Grey regarded her with a sidelong stare, then continued munching quietly, comfortable with her close company. Well, there is the king, I suppose, but he's always busy. After his rescue, Prince Kajor, now king, had made Marie his exclusive messenger, earning her considerable respect at court, but little else in the way of a social life. Also, with so much of her time spent either waiting in royal court or running His Majesty's important messages to various of the nobility stationed within the fortress city or in keeps and villages out in the realm, she had refined her speech so as to better mesh with the formal timbre and language of the court. She couldn't decide how much of this change was a result of conscious or subconscious effort on her part, but its effect along with the king's favoritism, was more and more noticeable, keeping others in royal service at varying distances from her. For not only was she his preferred messenger, she was also the one who helped rescue him from the Grimms. It had hurt her one day to overhear two squires at court gossiping about her aloofness. She knew this was only their jealousy of how the king regarded her with a fondness he never thought to conceal. Another time she had heard two former ladies-in-waiting point her out and accuse her of having designs on being queen someday. Feeling mischievous at that point and quite tired of the indirect slander, she turned and smiled wickedly at them, saying, And I'll be sure to remember you when I pick attendance for my court. To her satisfaction, they had pursed their lips and bugged their eyes with shock. In truth, the king regarded her more as a comrade at arms than anything else, and certainly not a candidate for marriage into the royal family. In fact, he was doing his best to avoid any behavior that might suggest interest in a mate at this point in time, despite the veritable flood of eager and hopeful sutresses hovering within and without the palace and the city. During her first moon at court, he had frequently requested her company when he had supped with the men in the royal guard. 
like his father, he knew the loyalty of his soldiers was the foundation of the safety of his realm, not an immediate queen or heir to his throne, despite he being the only living descendant of his line. The king's regular presence at the royal guard's table, once every quarter, maintained a high morale and allowed for a comfortable familiarity. As a result, Marie had been accepted as an equal among them, yet she was still regarded as Kajor's favorite, and any genuine interest in her company among them without the king nearby was thin. The stables were suddenly drowned in the scuffle and racket of soldiers running by. Glad for the distraction, Marie wandered out into the street and accidentally stepped into the path of Sangar, a burly member of the royal guard. He careened around her, lost balance, and fell on his rear. Oh, Sangar, I'm so sorry. She went to help him up. Clumsy. Oh. Then stopped as he realized who she was. It's you, Marie. She saw how he veiled his eyes with careful respect, and she hated it. Well, don't just sit there being nice, you oaf. Say what you feel. Boil out the pus. He fumed at her verbal prodding, his jaw tightening, then jumped up and brushed himself off. Doltish, dull-bladed girl. Is that the best you can do, Sangar? She stood underneath his chin and glared up at him. I can't help the last part. He met her eyes with a furious scowl that soon melted into a toothy grin. You, you got steel in your bones, you do. Perhaps. She nodded, glad to get an honest response for once. Now what's all the excitement? The sentries have sighted a dragon on the southern horizon. He turned and started down the street toward the outer wall of the city. Holding the trap door up, Sangar reached a calloused hand to Marie as she climbed the tight spiral steps that opened onto the top of the high fortress wall. Don't go falling off now. He dropped the trap door after her and hurried to his position. She followed and stood alongside him as they scanned the southern horizon intently. To her immediate disappointment, Nothing was out of the ordinary, the sky completely clear without a single cloud to break its azure sweep. Where is it? Word is it was a big flyer gliding round the nearest peaks of the Blackface. He shaded his eyes. It may have flown off, haven't heard of one coming into the adjacent portion since before I was a lad. Oh. He lowered his arm and gave a shrill whistle to another sentry down the wall. The other man looked first his way, then at another sentry, then back again and shrugged. Perhaps their response was premature. Arms snapped up to point all along the wall as the two words were echoed from post to post. They searched the sky again. Someone gasped as a small dark shape shot up from behind a distant peak. Gods, only dragons can rule the skies with speed like that. Marie thought otherwise, keenly remembering her swift flight upon a back of downy feathers. Not wanting to debate the matter, however. How can you tell a benign serpent from a malicious one at such a distance? Puffing himself up with self-importance, Sangar took on the knowledgeable arrogance of a tavern storyteller. 
Oh, it takes a sharp eye, it does. Sometimes the nasty kind will have a long tail with a point on the end, though, uh... <coughs> he grinned at her with his plump cheeks as he realized his error. Uh, having never seen one up close, uh, or even in the distance, <laughs> I can't call myself a master on them. She patted him on the back, glad for his honesty after all the tall yarns he had spun over steins of ale during those rare times when she would be included in a round of battle stories. When those tales surrounded the demigod Prince of Light's rescue of Prince Kajor from the Grimms, Marie had discovered, to her quiet amusement, that everyone considered themselves experts and first-hand witnesses of the event. Everyone, that is, except me. Reluctantly, the royal guard had acknowledged that a woman, who was not a warrior, had aided in the rescue, their discomfort with the fact reflected in their disregard for anything Marie attempted to embellish or correct in their yarns. Yet she had learned to take the whole matter in stride and would correct various guards' versions in private to lend their so-called remembrances credence. These adjustments were usually repaid in small favors in order to keep her from embarrassing the storytellers, such as Sangar allowing her to join him on the wall where everyone but royal guardsmen were forbidden. She had quietly informed Sangar, I wielded only a sword, and not very well either. Not a pike thrown from the clouds that impaled a score of grims. Though slightly inebriated that evening, he had remembered sword, enough to sword. alter his version to a sword impaling two grims after she had flung it from the sky. The dark shape dove straight down and disappeared below the line of a forest on the other side of the lake. Mmm, I saw no tail on that one, but tis a fair way off to tell for sure. Somewhere down the wall, a battle horn sounded the call to arms, sending royal guards scurrying to their posts. An officer shouted commands as the mysterious flyer appeared again and headed toward the city. Marie turned to inspect the banquets, platforms recessed behind and just below the parapet. Several giant crossbows with steel bolts poised were cocked by two men each, their positions marked by torches used to signal readiness. Initial aim was set to the southern sky, with spotters standing ready to call direction. Bow cords pulled taut, creaked menacingly. Impressed with the fortress city's defensive organization, Marie returned her attention to the sky. Anything? Not sure. Doesn't seem to be any dragon I've heard about before. Large wings beat the air, then stilled to glide effortlessly near the lake waters. A distant command echoed down the parapet. Draw aim. A few grunts were heard from the men laboring to train their heavy bows on the flyer. Marie felt her neck tingle and her skin tighten as she recognized something familiar in the flying form. It's coming right for us. Right for us! But is it a dragon? Great wings flattened in the wind as the flyer soared over the sparkling waters. Ready. Wings of gold opened wide, a bird of thunder nearing the city. Marie grabbed Sangar's arm. Sangar, no! By the gods, a giant eagle! Stay your weapons! 
As his command was relayed along the banquet, Marie felt her knees weaken beneath her as she realized how close to firing on him they had been. Coupled with this was the sudden flood of questions in her mind. Is this Paul? Is this an omen? Was Rawson involved? Is it real? Sangar's jaw hung open as he leaned back and followed the raptor as it shot by with a bone-chilling screech that reverberated from the surrounding hillocks. Stares of wonder followed the great bird of prey as it circled Forum, the walls erupting with shouts of excitement from the royal guardsmen. Ascending sharply into the blue, the eagle veered back to the southern wall and spread its wings fully. An awed silence befell the watchers. Gracefully, it landed before the gates, beating fiercely against the air as it slowed and lighted upon the ground. A flash of white struck where the eagle folded its wings, and without a sound, it was gone. In its place stood a dark-skinned man in odd, close-fitting clothing. Paul! Marie's eyes were wide as saucers, her hands in a death grip on Sangar's arm. Then she released him and was tearing down the parapet, dodging astonished men and sharp crossbow bolts jutting in her path. Sangar followed in her wake. Make way, lads! Make way! Make way! The main gates were already up, and a crowd of the curious had encircled Paul by the time Marie made her way to the trapdoor nearest the gate winches. Uncaring of anyone else, and desperate to touch, to prove that he did exist, that events before were not just fading dreams, she shoved her way through the bodies jostling for a closer look. Over the clamor of questions and speculations being passed around in the crowd, she could hear him speaking. Where is Marie? Where is the girl who brought me here before? Squeezing her way through the last line of onlookers, she burst into the small circle and came face to face with him. He met eyes with her, his countenance warming with an adoring smile. Marie. The crowd fell quiet in order to hear what was said. A legendary demigod was in their midst. Man and woman remained still and silent for a long moment, each savoring sight of the other and looking like living statues of adoration. Despite her dash down the parapet a few moments earlier, she was afraid to move or to say anything now lest he vanish. Everything in the moment seemed magnified. The breathing of the spectators, the smell of their sweat, the dirt, and the air, the heat of the suns overhead, the vision of him standing there looking at her. Finally, he reached out a hand. She lifted her own tentatively, daring to believe. The instant they touched, she rushed into his arms and felt herself welcomed within his embrace. Her ear against his chest, she listened to his strong heart pound and hugged him tighter. Tears moistened her cheeks, this being the first time anyone had come this close to her since before the famous rescue. At the same time, she could sense his subtle shaking as he, too, struggled against tears of joy. Shouts sounded from within the gates as a detachment of royal guards marched out to escort their visitor into the city. 
But it was after the crowd had been dispersed and the eight soldiers lined up on either side of the road when Paul finally let go of Marie. He held her hand firmly in his as they strolled through the gates with the guardsmen marching alongside them. Chapter 3 Enchanter Gawan and his horse trotted along the old road, winding its way over hills and around coppices of blue pine. The warm noon suns chased away all but the shadows of the forest nearby. Gawan had given up pondering the strange thunder that morning, and hummed a made-up tune as he organized in his mind all the questions he would ask of Master Rothson. In the midst of his musical deliberations, he heard a thin cry. Stop a moment, Malay. Hush, my friend. Malay's ears twitched and rotated back and forth as he sought what his master heard. Gawan slid off the saddle and walked a short distance, cocking his head from one side to the other. His immediate thought of someone in distress due to marauding grems was dashed in light of the fact that the reptilian savages had retreated from the kingdom over eleven moons ago. The rescue of the crown prince from their claws had broken their resistance and sent them running deep into uncharted wilderness. Since that time, overland travel had been quite safe. At least, that was what he had been told. Being recently from the reclaimed kingdoms of Felstar across the ocean, he had never seen a Grimm, only heard about them in his childhood. He saw the small limping form of a gray cat hobbling down the road toward him. Not wanting to scare it away, the enchanter squatted and spread his arms open. Come here, little one. The aged feline limped faster, then came to a stop just in front of him and dropped to the ground with its tongue lolling and sides heaving with exhaustion. Disturbed by the gaping wound in its side and the odd angle of its right hind leg clearly broken, Gawan touched its paw tentatively. What are you doing out here, old one? You should be curled up before a hearth in a home, not wandering lost out here in the wild. <coughs> its eyes were half shut with fatigue. Male, come here. He touched a finger to the cat's brow while his horse walked up behind him. What's your name? A silent impression came back. Standing, the enchanter took the water skin from his saddlebag, glad to see the concern reflected in his horse's eyes as Malay lowered his muzzle to inspect the frail creature. Instinctively, the steed moved back a pace or two for fear of stepping on him. This is Leomame, Malay. He has come a long way just to find me. Gawan poured water into his palm, then knelt and offered it to Leomame, who flicked a tongue gratefully into his hand. It seems the thunder has now found us. He stroked two fingers lightly along the cat's neck. Upon drinking his fill, the gray cat gurgled a thankful mew and rested on his side again. Gawan probed at the leg and became worried when Leomame did not try to nip at him from the pain. Worse, the wound had not scabbed over sufficiently, leaving an ugly tear of raw flesh. Major blood loss was apparent. His own fondness for cats tugged at his heart all the more, and his eyes filled with mist. Oh, my friend, 
I fear you are hurt too seriously for any mending I can provide, but you knew that, didn't you? Leomame squeezed his eyes and continued panting somewhat. I think I can help your pain at least. He positioned his hand flat just above the wound. The instant he opened himself to the cat, his mind screen flooded in a wash of not only severe pain, but of urgent images, clear and frightening. He withdrew his hand slowly and tried to get the scenes to coalesce in his mind. The intelligence behind those flitting memories was extraordinarily high for a domestic cat accustomed to life in the company of a human. You are someone's wardmate. Breathing slower and easier, Leo Mame squeezed his eyes again. You were someone's wardmate. He deciphered one of the brief images. From his studies of wardmates, he knew that such a loss, either of a wardmate or its master, was very difficult on the one still living, as the psychic attachment between master and wardmate was very intimate, each drawing strength from the other. The mage, being human and more complex emotionally, could generally survive the loss and possibly attain a new wardmate. But for a wardmate to lose its master, Gaewan could only blink away the tears in his eyes as he fathomed the depths of emotional pain radiating from Leomem. The cat tried in vain to scratch behind his ear, unable to get his broken leg to respond. He mewed his frustration and shook his head. Oh, my friend. With a heavy lump in the back of his throat, he lifted Leomem gingerly into his arms and rubbed a finger behind the offending ear. Angered at the harm done to this gentle creature, he looked deeply into the smoke-colored eyes. Who did this to you? Who sent you? With a wheeze of a purr, Leomame gazed adoringly up into the enchanter's eyes of azure and gold, and lent fleeting impressions of cruel children following a wagon on the road and hungry wolves on the trail, then the clear, concise image of an aged man robed in the cloth of a teacher. Rothson. But these faded all too quickly, and Gawan realized the animal was dying. Shaking off the disturbing vibrations of his psychic touch, he cradled the cat close to his chest and gave him an affectionate nuzzle on his nose. Your task is done. You needn't suffer any longer. Leo Mame touched a paw to Gawan's cheek as the light faded from his eyes. He touched a finger again to the gray cat's brow. Translate with ease, my friend. By the love of God do I bless thee then tearfully held him close until he sensed the departure of spirit and the stilling of the body. For a long time he stood in the middle of the road with tears streaming down his cheeks, yet he was unable to openly cry. To have met and lost a friend so quickly. Leomame had not come this far to simply die, his original purpose urgent but foiled by mishap. Gawan pondered this amidst his sorrow at his loss and the abrupt end to his own journey's purpose, that of meeting Rothson, a moon's time wasted sailing on a ship to a meeting that would never happen. He remained oblivious to the progressing day and his steed waiting patiently nearby. When he finally emerged from his silent catharsis, he took in his bearings and noted a hillock nearby topped by a single tree 
a sentry for the blue pine forest beyond. Making a decision, he strode purposefully up the straw-covered slope. Malhe seemed to understand and plodded after his master. Coming to a stop beneath a large pine crowning the hillock, Gawan lay the lifeless shell tenderly upon the ground, then reached into the folds of his dark green cloak. As he fumbled in various pockets, he sought about in his memory for a tune to lift his mood, but found none, and grumbled to himself mm. instead. Mm. Where are you hiding? The rustling and rattling of his robe's contents aroused Malay's interest, and the horse's ears twitched at each sound. A cool breeze danced with the boughs overhead. Concentrating on a particular pocket, he brought forth a handful of stones of various colors. Ah, the elusive crystal was sharing company with his friends. He lifted a small, clear, smooth sphere from the odd collection of small stones. He dumped the rest back in their pocket with a clatter, then stopped to look at the sky and noted a feeling of seeing what has been seen. But they had never been here before, physically anyway. Male? His roan stopped amidst cropping a small patch of grass and lifted its head to look at him. Have we been here before in the dream state? Male murmured an equine reply, and he and Gawan held each other's attention. An electrical tension, a vague foreboding, hung like heavy smoke in the air around them. The enchanter shivered, not from the cold. His horse glanced around before lowering his nose to the grass again. I was afraid of that. Oh well. Back to our task. He threw back his cloak, started to sit in a tailor's position, then hopped up again. Ouch! <clears throat> Infernal leg! A small cramp tightened, then eased. Resolved to stand, he faced east, raised the palm-sized ball of polished quartz, quieted his thoughts with a well-practiced discipline, and concentrated on its center. He saw colors swirl, vague shapes dance, and then a single clear image of a balding elderly man with piercing eyes. Rothson? Then the crystal went so dark that not even the light of the suns penetrated it. Gawan stared blankly, unsure of what this meant, and dared not move. Something strange beyond his control was happening. The crystal flashed brightly and popped with a loud crack as it burst within his hand. Jerking his arm back and hissing with pain, he looked first at the shards of quartz falling out of his palm and the blood welling from numerous small gashes in his fingers, then to where a mist gathered before him. Holding his bloody hand near his body, he watched with fascination as a form took shape and solidified into a being robed in bone white. Perplexed by the unexpected visitation, he searched the interior of the shadowed hood with his eyes. Who art thou? Seeming to lack substance to appear completely corporeal, the figure maintained only an illusory shimmer as it slowly held out a hand toward him. The enchanter dumbly raised his own bloody hand to meet the others, then froze as Malay, watching from nearby, intruded on the silence with a warning. No one moved, Gawan's and the visitor's fingers just without grasp of each other. Being well taught, 
if not well-practiced, in interacting with astral entities, he had been at first unconcerned with the mysterious appearance. But Male's caution had awakened his wary mind. Unable to discern a face or eyes triggered alarm. Challenge that which does not appear entirely true. Wilt thou speak thy name? His eyes remained locked on the hood. The hand reaching for his turned palm upwards in a gesture of offering, yet did not complete the motion of grasping, as if waiting for something. Gawan frowned suspiciously. I will be certain before I open to you. He remembered a name of pure spiritual essence. Zetar. To his immediate horror, the gentle hand shifted to menacing talons, the long red claws curling tight in a grip of anger. Gods! He dropped his hand and stumbled backwards. Steel whined as the entity unsheathed its curved sword and stepped forward to slash at his throat. The enchanter leaned back instinctively, then dropped to his knees while gaping in shock at the hood he now knew was faceless. No! He jabbed his good hand into a recently explored pocket. The necessary stone seemed to leap within his fingers. Quickly he brought out the bloodstone and held it in his fist before him like a shield. The specter slowed in its assault. The green chalcedony quickly became hot in Gawan's fingers and he dropped it. He stared in dismay at the spent bloodstone as it glowed like a coal on the ground between them. The force of negativity was far beyond its absorption capabilities. Yet it had served, if only partially, by forcing the entity to seek other methods of attack. The specter brought up a talon and clenched its claws tightly. Gawan's eyes went wide as pressures of panic and pain closed on his mind. Then he grunted as if punched in the gut and bent over in agony. Vivid images of being rent limb from limb shrieked through his mind. Legs crushed, arms broken, flesh torn like so much meat. Fighting for breath and gritting his teeth, he struggled to resist the psychic attack that tore into his thoughts like vicious wolves at the kill. Further sensations of being bled dry, being eviscerated, ate into his crumbling resistance. No. He had no ward against this. Pressing his bloody fist to his face, he sought for something, anything to push away the black oppression threatening to smother him. No. He was unable to conjure anything in his awareness to force back the mental violence gnawing at his thoughts like a giant worm. The specter's enigmatic appearance at the outset was a deception in order to get close enough to make immediate physical contact with him. In so doing, it could have killed him instantly and with ease. It still meant to kill him, only now he had made the task more difficult. He was meant to die alone on the road, far from help. No one would ever know what became of him. But what had he done to evoke the attack? Mali. Male, speak to me. His horse stamped with agitation as one word entered his mind in reply. Blood? Shakily, he pulled his fist away from his face and looked at the blood oozing between his fingers. All became abruptly clear, and he remembered scenes of a black magic ceremony where the fresh blood of living sacrifice was required for power to work spells. 
the specter had yet to touch him, his blood, and was resorting to its formidable psychic strength to ignite his fears and make him believe he was going to be killed. Through belief was unlimited power. If he believed he was about to die, he would. The entity used Gaewan's own power against him. Deep fury at being manipulated quickly replaced his fear. The horrible images faded like nightmares before the suns. He glowered angrily at the creature standing with talons clenched in a gesture of control. Spectre, my ill-gotten blood is now denied you. He rose slowly from his knees and stared contemptuously at the intruder. I disallow your power over me. He held his fists firm at his sides, willing his anger to overcome the sudden impulse to turn and run. The faceless hood stared back emptily, and, after a moment, the talons unclenched and dropped in a gesture of defeat. An agent of the two-headed god crosses wills with me. The hood nodded slowly. Gawan narrowed his eyes at the entity of which he had only read about in an ancient tome. How many have you killed by turning their fears against them? The curved sword was resheathed neatly and quietly, no answer given. I am Gawan, enchanter of the Second Circle. He felt a surge of confidence with his declaration. You cannot touch or harm me unless I allow it. No reaction was made to his defiance, the hood gazing back emptily. I can channel forth energy to destroy you if I so choose. This time the hood nodded slowly. Disturbed and confused by the passiveness of the malevolent entity, Gawan cast psychically about the area for an instant to detect any approaching dangers. Only his elfin horse stood nearby with eyes averted. He had defeated the specter's attempt at slaying him, yet it remained before him instead of leaving as it had come. He quickly scanned his memory for anything about the loathsome specters he may have been taught, but the only thing he could recall was that the entities had been known to appear when the mystical balances of power were threatened. They would be found at the initiation of the imbalance. But he had done nothing aside from travel, Therefore, no, I have met Rothson's wardmate, been made aware, if only vaguely, of the Master Enchanter's demise, and evoked powers of seeing upon the situation, used his crystal to look into things that might best have been left unseen, things involving agents of the Dark One. Such things were indeed best left alone, but he had become involved indirectly and therefore sought answers. Perhaps in so doing he had made himself a pivotal point. He was reminded of his forest fire dream. And like my dream, there's nothing helpful in the way of illumination. Only senseless destruction of life by forces beyond his control. Why did you attack me? A talon pointed at him in warning. Arcane knowledge is forbidden. You will not interfere. Return whence you came. She must die. She? Gawan frowned. Who? 
The specter faded, becoming transparent again. Desperate for knowledge, the enchanter stepped forward and grabbed for the lowering talons. No, don't do this! As he made contact with the dry, scaly claws, the specter became abruptly solid and whole as it drew power from the fresh blood on his hands. And though contact originally would have allowed the entity to kill him, Gawan reversed the situation by forcing his will and anger through the same channel. Holding the demonic appendages repulsed him as would reaching into a pit of snakes, but he held on tight, furious for being told only enough to confuse him. He glared into the empty hood. Tell me! I will not be the witless pawn! The specter's claws curled inward and dug into the flesh of his hands. He screamed with the fire that scorched through his body as he achieved immediate psychic rapport with the entity. His skin felt as if it would melt from the waves of heat pouring through him. At the same time, the intense pain and depth of the knowledge roaring through his mind from the specter forced him to loosen his grip. With the echo of his screams fading into the forest, Enchanter Gawan fell to the ground, unconscious. A Bridge of Doom, Part 2, Agents of the Dark One. The sound plays were written, recorded, directed, mastered, and produced by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Copyright 2022. Character voices are performed by William Bloxham, Geraldine Cummings, Kevin Norris, Ira Lively, Todd Suarez, and H. The Great and Powerful. The novel and sequels of the Quintology are available through Amazon.com or on Kindle Books, can be ordered at your favorite bookseller, or can be purchased directly and at best price, with additional bonuses from the author by submitting a request to our email. Music for the Harkin Theater was composed and performed by Evan McDonald, Florian Serral, Francesco D'Andrea, Atlas Mason, High Street Music of London and licensed by PremiumBeat.com Public domain music performances are licensed under Lieber Lieber Creative Commons More detailed music and performer credits can be requested from the Harkin Theatre at Yahoo.com Sound effects and original foley provided by Cusp Studios and the BBC Library This was recorded on location in the universe.